what they're saying is, if a five-year-old boy was brought into therapy because he thinks that he's a girl, under the conversion therapy bans, if I lived in a state or a city where those bans were in place, I would not be allowed to talk to that boy about how to be comfortable as a boy. But I would be allowed to tell him, why don't you start wearing a dress? Why don't you change your name? And then let's look at hormones. When you, uh, about eight or nine, you can start doing puberty suppressing hormones. Would say that, you know, homosexuality is a choice. As you said, we don't choose our feelings. We discover how we feel. However, the flip side of that is we do choose our behaviors. Are you kidding me? This is what we're doing in in the United States. We're saying we can't talk to a child about how to get to the root of their confusion talk, verbally talk with them about how to get to the root of their confusion, but we can help them be the opposite sex. Julie, it's so great to have you with us today for um, uh, for our podcast uh, for Love and Truth Network. And um, I would just, I mean, you and I have known each other for years, but I just wanted to uh, have you kind of introduce to uh, those that will, will be watching this podcast. You follow Love and Truth Network. And would you just share uh, who you are, your title, your name, that kind of thing to start off with? And then uh, if you just share some of your own story of coming to faith in Christ. Sure. Yes. So my name is Dr. Julie Hamilton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I have a private practice uh, where I see people um, with different varying issues, all different types of issues. And I also love to educate on um, same-sex attractions and how that develops in early childhood and um, also educating and equipping, you know, um, Christians to understand this issue and to relate well and so forth. So. that's that's kind of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And then as far as um, coming to faith, as a young child, I was um, blessed that my parents, when I was two, they moved into a new house in a neighborhood where their next door neighbors were Christians. And so those wonderful neighbors reached out to my parents and eventually led them to the Lord and mentored them as as baby Christians. And so as a result, I was able to grow up in a Christian home and I received the Lord personally as my savior as a very young child at the age of four and then really grew up in um, we were in a couple of different churches through my childhood, but we were always in Bible-believing churches and churches that emphasize the importance of reading the Bible on your own, growing spiritually, praying, having a relationship with God, sharing your faith. So I'm really indebted. I'm indebted to the neighbors that led my parents to the Lord, okay. and I'm indebted to the churches that we were in that really um, helped us to grow spiritually. So I was able, to, as a, a young child and teenager, to continue, and I also attended Christian schools, which I love Christian education. Um, and so I was able to grow in my relationship with the Lord throughout my you know, early years, teen years, and even into college. And then as a young adult, I um, I ended up being single for longer than most of my friends. I, I didn't get married until I was 37. So as a single adult, I got to really experience the closeness with the Lord that um, really coming to discover God as the most intimate, 
really life partner that we could have that he loves us and he wants that close, deep fellowship with us. So I am so thankful that in those years of singleness, I was able to, to realize that we can truly be fulfilled with our relationship with God. Of course, we need people. I always had friends and family, but that God truly can meet our needs. And that if, if for those who are called to be single and those who are, are not married, that we can have such wonderful fellowship with the God of the universe who loves us and wants to commune with us. He wants to speak to us. He wants us to talk to him. So that was um, really ended up being quite a privilege to be able to be single and experience God in a deep way. And that's for everyone. I mean, God says, you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I always encourage people, pursue him, pursue closeness, because there's so much fulfillment in a relationship with God. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. So, and then how did you get um, really interested in uh, in the topics of um, LGBT and the church and how the church can and 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 should respond. Yes. Okay. So when I was finishing up my PhD program in marriage and family therapy, and I really knew nothing about the topic of homosexuality, but at that time, a family member, a very close family member came and shared with me that he was gay. And I hadn't learned anything about that in my classes other than, well, I had learned stuff that wasn't actually true, come to find out. But I um, grew up kind of just thinking it was a choice, not knowing anything more than that. Um, now I've come to realize that it's really not a choice. People don't choose to have those attractions, uh, but that's just what I thought at the time. So when that, um, when the family member disclosed that, it led uh, some of us in the family to kind of look for some answers. So my parents started looking for answers to understand this issue, just to understand because we really didn't know anything. And then they shared information that they were finding. They shared that with me. They discovered some great organizations like um, it was over probably 25 years ago, Exodus Mm -hmm. International was a wonderful Christian ministry that really um, provided so much insight that we just did not have at the time. And then I got, I also, my parents discovered this, and then I ended up getting involved in a scientific organization. Um, At the time, it was the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. The name has changed now to the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice and Scientific Integrity. But that organization, I um, really looked at the research behind the issue. And what I discovered is that there is so much good information that's just not widely known. And that I realized that people are not simply born gay, but it's also not a choice. They don't choose it and they're not born that way. The research is clear that people are not born that way. And so I discovered that there are reasons that children end up developing in their childhood, actually. They begin developing um, what later becomes same-sex attractions. And so once I started learning about this, I just wanted to educate. I just thought, oh, everybody in the world needs to know this. I thought, you know, parents especially need to understand this because some of the confusion that children experience is preventable. Yes. If parents knew some of these things, it would really prevent. And I also thought, gosh, the church needs to understand this because they would probably, if people understood the bigger picture of what's going on in the life of someone who has same-sex attractions, maybe people would be more compassionate. You know, they would respond appropriately. Um, and so there were just, I just realized this information is so helpful in so many ways to so many people. So I started really becoming passionate about educating on this topic. And so I, I do that whenever I get the chance. That's great. And that's where, as I said earlier, that's where I kind of first met you at a conference and sat in on a workshop that you did that was so impactful and so helpful for me. And I had no idea that, 
you know, all these years later, we'd, we'd stay connected in some way, seeing each other at conferences or whatever. And, uh, yes, so that's, yes. that's been awesome. Um, and, uh, yes. and yeah, and since I first met you, I was single, you were single at the time and now, uh, you know, that's you're married right. with kids and now I'm married with kids. It's just, uh, pretty cool. What, what God has done. Um, and I would love to, and I think they were all, I think your kids are similar ages to my kids too. Yes. I think you, uh, there were you and Melissa were on parallel tracks yep. with me and my husband. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. Um, and I remember too, when I first was kind of got to know you a little bit, um, hearing, uh, your father, uh, share and, and your mom as well. And it just, their story is so fascinating and so interesting. I know your dad has since gone home to be with Jesus. Um, but can you share a little bit about, um, about them and, and their journey? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So my dad was definitely um, not the kind of person that would have ever predicted becoming involved in anything related to LGBTQ anything. He sadly, um, he well, he was a very tough New Yorker, grew up, you know, fighting, really. He actually was a boxer. I mean, very tough guy who sadly did not like people who were gay. And he just had, he, and he will admit, he, he did admit that he was homophobic. I mean, he would describe that just a, a hatred really. And so when he found out, when it hit home in the family, uh, first of all, he was devastated, just devastated to have a family member involved in something that he just had such disdain for. But then God, through breaking his heart, also began to develop in him a heart of compassion. He, he had to first come to understand more about this issue. And then through that, he developed a heart of compassion. And it's amazing because then God led him and my mom to, at first they found a ministry to get support and help for themselves. And they learned as much as they could. And they met with other parents who were going through the same thing. But then God eventually led them to start a ministry because uh, for them, when they first found out, they had to travel an hour to go and right. um, get ministry themselves. So they eventually realized they needed to start a ministry in their area for other parents that were in their county. So they did. And um, it, it's amazing, really, because over the years, my dad ended up getting a, um, a biblical counseling credential that would enable him to disciple and mentor these men who were struggling with same-sex attractions that they didn't want. These They had unwanted same-sex attractions. They were seeking help. And um, they my, through my dad's ministry, he would meet with these men and he would mentor them. And it was incredible that God had taken this man who once really hated people who struggled with this and developed compassion. And now he was helping these people. And these, these men really looked up to him as a father figure. They really, they, they really liked him. And it really was such a, a beautiful thing, how God can take our pain and he can transform us and then he can use yes. us to help others. Yes. So it was really neat. And my mom, my dad did pass away, but my mom still leads the ministry. And so they, she has a group for parents a lot of times parents are just confused and brokenhearted when they find out that their child is either dealing with same-sex attraction or more and more now it's gender confusion where kids are wanting to go down the transgender pathway. That's what we're seeing more of. So my mom has a lot of parents that are just devastated that their child is seeking to change who they are. And um, so she still leads that she has a prayer group for parents, a Zoom prayer group where she's able to meet with parents from all different states as well. And then she does a monthly support and my mom would say that finding out, um, you know, when it hit home, when when this issue kind of hit home for her, that God 
changed her also from being judgmental. She said it really made her less judgmental. And so even though she wasn't hateful the way my dad was, her issue was just being judgmental in general about people in general, yeah. about ev- everything. <laughs> and and she said through that, she realized that, you know, she, she God changed her from being judgmental to being compassionate and realizing that we all have struggles right. of different types. Right. So, well, I love that yeah. story too. And I, um, you know, it's uh, part of my healing really came, uh, some of my, my most significant, uh, healing came from, uh, yielding, uh, to the Lord when I felt him prompting me to join a Christian men's group at a church that I had recently found that was a real lifeline, uh, for me. And I just, when I, when I heard, uh, the announcement from the front about, um, a men's group starting up in the fall or restarting, um, I just, my immediate thought was, well, I'm not going to that thing, you know? And cause the last uh-huh. I grew up in the church and I grew up around Christian men, it was oftentimes in that context that I felt shamed and pushed out of the world of men. I didn't belong. I didn't fit in. And, um, and so I really had this very negative view of, of, of guys in general. And just, I think the negativity just flowed out of my own sense of shame posture, waiting to be shamed. And, uh, but as soon as I felt that almost immediately, I felt like the Lord was saying, Oh yes, you are, you know, that is where I want you. I want you to go there. And so there, after some arguing, uh, you know, the Lord won and I, I wound up going to that group and it was, um, you know, for years, uh, that group was just a lifeline for me. It, it really, I, I oftentimes, um, say that I came to that church in my early thirties or mid thirties, I guess, uh, really is a boy um, emotionally. And frankly, mm. that's an issue across the board. I don't care whether you're dealing with LGBT issues or or not. You know, many men in their 50s and 60s are walking around as, as you know, children. And so are, so are many women, mm. just unhealed, you know, trauma and, and other yeah. things. And, uh, but I really became a man at this church. I, I emotionally, I mm. grew up in the company of other men. And I love how God can take that natural stage of development. I know you're going to talk about that in a minute, or I'd like you to, but um, that natural stage of development of of where we get to a sense of who we are in context with our peers, and it's it's never too late by His grace to kind of relearn that, and and um, it looks a little yeah. bit different and all of that. Uh, but but I feel like my years at that church, um, and then I, the, the church wound up hiring me on staff, and I worked there for twelve years. I mean, they knew my whole story. Um, I was there for twelve years before starting this ministry that Melissa and I now lead, Love and Truth Network. And uh, but it was it was really this reformation, um, uh, or this calling up and calling out of who I, who I was always was as a masculine being, but I just feel like I was so much of a husk of a man because my dad didn't, didn't have any idea how to, or that it was even needed of, of how to call that out or how to, how to help me engage with who I was as a, as a boy and as, as a becoming a man. And, and in my mid thirties, God really met me there. And so I love, you know, what you're saying about that. And, um, and just the, the way God can use men who have never struggled with the same things that I struggled with to really be essential in our healing process. So, yes, that is so, yes, it really, um, speaks to the importance of people in the church you know, for you, it was the men in the church who really took you under their wing and did not let the difference of whatever, you know, sometimes it's just a different struggle, but it's the same, um, sin nature and fallen humanity. And so they, it does speak to the need of people within the church to, to minister to others and to reach out. And it's so great that you ended up joining that group and followed God's prompting because I, I hear that so often that people who struggle with same sex attraction, they might first find their 
healing with those who have a similar struggle. But then when they all move on to be in groups and surrounded by men who have a different struggle, yes. it's another level of healing. So that, yeah, yeah. that is so, so And of course, my wife, Alyssa, found, uh, you know, similar experiences in the company of, of godly women, you know, and sisters in yes. Christ. And, yes. uh, I, and one of the things that speaks yes. to to me, it, my wife is a licensed counselor, or you're a marriage and fam- family therapist, and those are Th- those are such needed roles in, in life today. But what I love is, and I'm always telling guys, look, you don't have to have a PhD in human sexuality right. to make a difference as a, yes. a as an older brother or as a spiritual father in the life of people who are wrestling, not only in, in the LGBT area, but we're all wrestling. Um, and, and we really need more. I mean, hello, you know, we need spiritual fathers yes. and mothers to, to really rise up yes. and to see how much they're needed in the mentoring of, yes. uh, of younger men and younger women. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. What a difference that makes. Well, yes. And I, yeah. when I first, I mentioned this earlier, but when I first became acquainted with you, it was really, I think through a teaching that you did, um, on explaining, it was so helpful for me at the time. I had, I, I just didn't have any understanding or context for this at the time. And so it was a lifeline. Um, but it was, um, understanding a little bit about uh, the the formation or the development, the potential development of same-sex attraction and how that can happen um, in, in our lives. Can you um, take some time to unpack that for us? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So um, it, it, one of the things I do always want to point out when we talk about the things that can occur in childhood that can lead a child to having same-sex attraction is that it's not just what happens to a child but how a child perceives what's happening. So I really always want to emphasize that because I think parents are often filled with guilt anyway. Most parents, you know, are aware of either the mistakes they made or they might even have false guilt over things that really weren't mistakes, but they're blaming themselves anyway. And so I want to point out to parents that it's not just what happens, but how the child is perceiving what happens. And sometimes children misperceive what's happening. Mm -hmm. One of the factors that we see with many people who end up with same-sex attractions is that they have a sensitive temperament. And I, I really talk about it as a gifted temperament. It's often these children, they are deep feelers usually and deep thinkers. So they're very, they're very just deep. They take things in at a deep level. They think oftentimes they're very smart and very observant. So they notice everything. They're just really taking it all in, but they're also um, taking it in. They're, they're thinking, thinking, thinking. Sometimes they're thinking so much so that it becomes overwhelming and they're taking, they're feeling it at such a deep level. So they're very much affected by what's happening to them. And sometimes they're misinterpreting what's happening. Um, but because they, they take it in and they're so affected by it, uh, they can be, you know, kind of traumatized by something that wouldn't necessarily be traumatic to someone else. So they might have a sibling who's not the deep sensitive type and the sibling might go through the same experience and it just rolls right off and they don't even think about it again. But, but the sensitive one is going to be affected by things much more dramatically than the non-sensitive one. And so that's one, one factor that we often see not always, but often that children that end up with same-sex attraction or even gender confusion, they often have a sensitive temperament. So they're going to be taking things in, in a much deeper way. And so, um, the other factors have to do with, um, one of the other factors has to do with bonding and the importance of the bond with the same sex, either parent or peers. So for example, um, when children are born, their first attachment figure is the mother. The mother is the one that carries them in her womb. She's the one God designed to be the source of food, even 
really solely at first and then ongoing for the first couple of years. And so the, the, the bond happens with the mother first, but then for boys around the age of one and a half to four, they have a need to then move from that attachment solely with the mother to bonding more with the father. And then the girl will have the need to stay bonded to the mother because it's during that stage that they're beginning to develop a sense of who they are in terms of their gender. And so a little boy looks to the father to understand who he is Mm -hmm. as a boy. So he has questions such as, what are boys like? How do they walk? How do they talk? Who am I as a boy? Do I measure up? Do I have what it takes? Do you see value in me? So the little boy's wondering all of these things and the father answers those questions through the relationship. So none of this is just a spoken thing, but more of an unconscious, the boy's wondering and the father through the bond they form, the boy begins to understand who he is. He feels he, he, he um, discovers through the father how boys walk and talk and act. And he discovers that he does have value and he is like his father in many ways. And so similarly, the girl discovers who she is in her gender through the the bond with the mother. So it's important for the child to have a good relationship with the same sex parent. And then around the age of five through puberty, children need to be able to bond with same sex peers. And you see this happen naturally that in elementary school, typically boys want to play with other boys and girls want to play with it. They gravitate towards members of the same Mm -hmm. sex. In fact, they say, you know, boys have cooties or girls have cooties. You know, it's that whole no girls allowed kind of thing. But that's actually a, a needed stage of development because in those many years of bonding with the same sex, they're discovering who they are. We discover who we are by being with those who are like us. And then, so little boys are discovering more of who they are by being with other boys and girls are discovering about themselves by being with other girls so that by the time they reach puberty, they have a good solid sense of who they are. And now they can become interested in and attracted to the opposite sex. So they begin to, to find what's to be curious about what's different from them. But for the children who end up with same-sex attractions, often there's something that is preventing them from having that solid bond with the same-sex parent and something preventing them from having that solid bond with same-sex peers. And so they are often instead bonding with the opposite sex. So for example, a little boy might have a mother, grandmother, aunts, sisters. He has a lot of women in his life that are pouring into him. And um, he's craving male input though, because that's a God-given need. So he's craving male input but not getting that. And so then by the time he reaches puberty, that craving for male input now becomes more of a sexualized craving. Yeah. Yeah. The, the more of the romantic, um, kind of romanticizing that, that gap, uh, that emptiness longing for it, that longing kind of produces. And then the mystery also of, um, you know, of, uh, of, of our own, our, our own gender. And then that oftentimes either because of abuse or because of, maybe early pornography exposure, um, or, um, and that doesn't always happen, but it often does. Um, and, or if that doesn't happen by the time we hit puberty, um, you know, either through, um, uh, through masturbation and fantasy or pornography or getting involved with, you know, another boy in sexual experimentation as a boy or a, a girl with a girl that those things, you know, there's a, there's a, a shift from, uh, from God's design for us, um, for intimacy and that sense of longing, which there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's right. We were made for that. But then that shift toward more of a romantic longing and then, and then 
um, some form of sexualization that tends to solidify all of that. We kind of rewrite our understanding of ourselves through that lens of, of sexual attraction. Um, but that's why I, I re- really do understand, and I felt this way too, that I used to think that, well, for as long as I can remember, I was gay. And and as I've uh, thought that about that more carefully, it's like, no, I wasn't, like, I think I had really good and healthy desires as a child that largely went unmet. And, um, and, you know, and then through, through that lack, and then through also my own behaviors, I kind of reinforced same sex attraction, and then that became sexualized. I don't know, do you have thoughts about that to to speak to at all? Yes, yes, yes. People do often say just what you said that so many will say, well, as long I've felt this way, as long as I can remember. And so I talk about how, you know, two or three years old is as far back as we can remember. And probably from that early age, there was a craving for same-sex connection. It wasn't a sexual need, though, or a romantic craving. It's a God-given need for same-sex bonding that probably wasn't being met. And so, yes, you may remember that craving, but just like you said, they're remembering it in a different way. They're thinking that it was a sexual thing. It it really wasn't. When God-given needs go unmet, they often will intensify. So he, the child probably had this God-given need from early on. It was not being met. Right. And then over time, it's intensifying and it'll either intensify or take on another form. And so with puberty and the sexual, you know, sexual feelings developing and so forth, that emotional need will often become um, kind of transformed into a more of a sexual. It'll become um, kind of confused into a sexual feeling or desire for romantic connection Mm -hmm. with the same sex, but it really was an emotional need at the time. It's almost, I heard someone say once, it's almost like the wires get crossed. It's like the sexual feelings are developing and the emotional craving is there. And it's kind of like the wires get crossed. You mentioned something else um, that I hadn't mentioned, which is so important. The other thing is sometimes there is other factors would be pornography exposure or sexual abuse. So if a child has experience any kind of sexual experience like that, pornography or abuse, that also will create appetites and can mm-hmm. certainly confuse a child in their thinking and in the just the, the cravings that they have. And then also, as you said, as someone, let's say, who maybe they weren't abused or didn't have pornography exposure, but they did have this emotional need that went unmet. And now there's this um, desire for the same sex, you know, there's our same sex attraction. Now, once a person starts experimenting or getting into a relationship, they will create and reinforce those app. They'll create appetites or reinforce appetites. And so it kind of becomes this reinforcing identity even, you know, where, yeah, this is who I am. I knew this, this all along. And it just kind of reinforces and almost kind of can cause a person to feel more entrenched in an identity that really wasn't that really wasn't what it was all about. Right. It was about emotional needs that weren't being met. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned this as well, but I think to reinforce that where the church, at least historically, and some still today, would say that, you know, homosexuality is a choice. As you said, we don't choose our feelings. We discover how we feel. Right. However, the flip side of that is we do choose our behaviors. And so by me yes. choosing behaviors, I was reinforcing the feelings and uh, yes. in, in a yes. very strong way, actually. And, uh, and so that, you know, that that's where the choice comes in, but we don't initially choose. Nobody wakes up one day just saying, Oh, I think I'm going to be such and such today. Um, it's, it's something you discover, you know, the other thing too, um, Julie is, uh, um, like what you just described is, 
I've heard very common in the world uh, in, in with men, with boys. And I've heard uh, a number of, of girls and women that would describe very much what you described too. But for example, with, with Melissa, my wife, um, she had been in three long-term uh, relationships with men. Um, uh, they had become sexual as well. Uh, she had had no same-sex attraction whatsoever. Uh, there was a lot of um, deprivation in her life in terms of connection, uh, just family dynamics that weren't healthy. And, um, and, uh, but she was pretty miserable, you know, and she, but she was moving toward, um, everything was, was on the outside was looking great in her life. She was getting phenomenal grades in, in, uh, college university, uh, very, very bright, um, uh, big, bright future. Uh, she's, she's engaged to be married to this, uh, to this man who she cared about. Um, but as she's moving closer and closer to marriage, she's getting more and more miser miserable and not really connecting the dots at all. Mm -hmm. And then somebody, one of her friends just said, well, have you ever thought about dating so-and-so? And so-and-so was a woman. She's like, what? You know, it, it was like the first time that anything, any kind of serious thought, um, certainly a question like that had ever been um, introduced to her. And it wasn't that many weeks, months later when she wound up breaking up, breaking off her engagement and getting involved with a woman and feeling like this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And I've heard similar wow. stories of women yeah. that have been married to men. Maybe that they, they were in an abusive relationship, or and 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 they wind up forming a, an emotional bond with another woman that at first is not sexual yes. at all. But do you? Um, that's right. that doesn't for most guys. That's not typical. I mean, maybe we're going to move more into that arena as as LGBT all things becomes more and more mm. um, popularized. But for most guys, yeah. it seems to be for as long as I can remember, I felt such and such. But oftentimes for yes. women, it doesn't, it doesn't really require that, I don't think. Yes, I would agree with you. That's exactly what I've observed as well, that with most men, it is that they, they have those attractions that were rooted in early, you know, craving for emotional needs to be met. With women, some women don't ever have, like, just like you're describing with Melissa, they, they don't ever have attraction to the same sex until a certain point. And so one of the factors with that, I'd say a couple of things. Um, for women, sexual feelings are often tied to emotional bonding. And so, and I think men and women are different this mm -hmm. way, whereas I think men can kind of have sexual desire where there's not emotional bonding. For women, emotional bonding can lead to sexual desire. Mm -hmm. So for some women, they get involved in a relationship with another woman that starts out non-sexual and, and it's, it, but oftentimes the, the type of relationship I'm talking about is unhealthy. So it's, you'll see this with maybe a girl who didn't have attractions towards another girl before, and maybe she ends up becoming friends with someone who does have attractions to the same sex mm -hmm. and the friendship becomes super unhealthy. And the one, sometimes it, it, the one that has attractions to the same sex kind of leads, leads the way or you know, for whatever reason, the two find themselves in a very unhealthy relationship, which I would call emotional dependency. Right. And they, and there's um, a great little booklet about this where the author talks about that emotional dependency is like relational idolatry. Mm -hmm. It's where um, they begin to think they can't live without each other. They begin to put each other before anything else, even God. And eventually, even for the one who never even thought about being with another woman, eventually that type of emotional unhealthiness can lead to sexual feelings. It just kind of moves in that direction. And so that's one, that's one factor that you'll see sometimes, especially with married women who maybe they're, they might have troubled marriages or, you know, they might have unmet needs of other types. Mm -hmm. 
early on and just a lot of dissatisfaction. And then they get into this unhealthiness with another woman and suddenly think, then they, they develop feelings, sexual feelings. And then they suddenly think, oh, this is who I am. This is who I was all along. So yeah, emotional dependency is a factor. But I think what you're describing um, is, and maybe this is with Melissa, where if you, where a woman could just get into a relationship that starts out emotional and it can be sexual, it can become sexual. And maybe there's other factors going on there. You said, I think for Melissa, there was other, you know, lacks, um, a lack of needs met or needs Mm -hmm. not being met in right ways, um, earlier on. So, yeah, that is, I think that's, that's exactly what I've observed too, that for women, you see this with girls too, teen girls who can, will experiment with the idea of being lesbian or transgender or bisexual often because it's trendy. And then once they go into experimenting, they cultivate appetites and they, some of them, the experiment becomes lifelong. Um, whereas with guys, they really don't often just experiment. They often would have those attractions to begin with. Although I agree exactly with what you've said, that might change as kids are getting more confusing information and being encouraged to experiment with identities. I mean, that definitely could change for guys where experimentation, you know, leads to feelings. And I'm I'm sure there are some guys um, that, you know, there's, there's always people that are kind of outside some of the common themes um, and, you know, kind of outliers. And um, just as there are some women who, for example, wrestle with pornography addiction. I mean, that's historically been uh, right. thought of as a, as a guy's issue and, you know, predominantly, yes. Right. But when women never hear a message that there's hope for you, you know, that what you're dealing with is a guy's issue yes. that even heaps right. on greater shame. And so we want to, we want right. to take shame off, not guilt, not, not a, a need yeah. for repentance of sin, but we want to take that yes. unhealthy shame off and, and invite people to come, yes. you know, into the light and to find the help that they need. You know, one of the, I have several questions yes. that I wanted to um, chat with you about, but there's there's one that um, uh, something that came up as you were sharing that I hadn't thought about um, prior, but it's and it connects to Melissa a little bit too because she's actually an identical twin, and and so um, I know that there have been uh, you know lots and lots of different. I mean, that's that's a great pool uh, to pull from to do a variety of studies, you know, on identical. Uh, twin studies. And I think there have been a number of studies done, even in different countries around the topic of, uh, I think in some ways, wanting to to demonstrate that um, homosexuality, lesbianism, uh, transgender, or, or um, well, all of it, homosexuality is, um, is genetic, that it's inborn. And yet what we find um, from twin studies is uh, I, what I find as I read those is not only is it not inborn, but re- actually, I think it underscores the reality that environment plays such a huge role um, and, and where yes. we're at in the stage of, of development within our environment. What, do, what are your thoughts about um, the uh, twin studies in, uh, in relationship? Yes, yes. Yes, I think those exactly that, that the twin studies have shown us that it's not biological. In the 1990s, researchers were really pushing hard to prove, especially um, researchers who were gay identified really wanted to push hard to find a biological cause because that could become the foundation for the gay rights movement. If they could prove that it was biological, then naturally there would be more rights made available or more you know laws could be changed. And so they looked and looked and looked, but they never did find a biological mm-hmm. cause. And although there were studies that were, there was um, the one study on um, the gene, gay gene, there was a claim that a researcher had found a gay gene, 
Well, the researchers said, no, I actually, it wasn't a gay gene that I found. And, but the media made it yes. like this widespread thing that a gay gene had been found. Well, that study that wasn't even claiming to have found a gay gene um, actually was never replicated. And so that study was completely thrown mm -hmm. out, but the culture was misled to think that it is biological. And even I've seen textbooks that say it's biological, mm -hmm. but we know it's, I mean, if you even, um, you know, the American Psychological Association in their LGBT division, there's a statement where they say we researchers have looked for a cause and they have not found one. Right. And most people believe it's nature and nurture. But one of the things that did, so that was in the 90s, by the year 2000, they, there were starting to be more twin studies. What There were starting to be um, large twin studies that were done. I know one was done on the Australian twin registry. Mm -hmm. And and since that year 2000, many st twin studies have been done. And they show that less when one identical twin is gay, approximately less than 20% of the time is the other one gay. And the numbers are even lower. I'm, I'm being generous there. I think it's 14% mm -hmm. for women, 11% for men in some of those studies. I mean, so we'll say less than 20% of the time is the other one also gay. And so that sort of settles it that while no one could find the biological cause, in all the other studies that were done, now these studies show it's really not biological because yeah. with identical twins, you should see a much higher rate of both twins being gay. And so exactly what you said, we know that there are other factors at work, environmental factors and interpretation of environmental yes, factors yes, is the other absolutely. thing, you know, how the child is interpreting what's happening. So yeah. yes, that's, that's interesting. I didn't realize Melissa was an identical twin. Yeah. Yep. That's neat. But those, those studies have shown a lot, which has been helpful. Well, in, in the way, when I've looked at those studies, I, at first I was just looking at the reality that they really, they disprove a biological um, component and, and, or, or biological determinative factors. Um, right. but, but then I began to think, well, wait a minute, it's not just showing from my perspective, at least I'd love for you to weigh in on this. It's not just showing that it's not biological, <clears throat> but to me, it was also underscoring the idea that it was actually environmental because, um, or, or the environment plays such a big role because, you know, both twins, both children as identical twins are experiencing the same environment. Now they're individual people, but they're experiencing it in the exact same stage of development. And so the, yes. the reality as I've looked at those is they tend they're the, the, the idea that when one is gay, the other one, you know, whether it's 14% of the time or under 20% of the time that, that they are also, that's higher than the average uh, of the population um, okay. in general. And to me, that speaks to um, reinforcing the idea that no, environment does play a role because of, of, right. of the, them being at, at the exact same stage of development. What I, I, That's totally yeah. on my part, I understand. But do you see the logic behind that? That makes sense. Yes, yes. And I hadn't thought about that. But yes, that made, that does make sense. Yes, that both are going to having the same experiences. You do see too with siblings oftentimes, not just twins, but siblings um, where you, you'll see multiple in, in a family um, that experience, family experiences do affect and in not just family experiences, but yes, things that are happening in a child's yeah. life and what they're exposed to, what they, um, yeah, can play a huge role. And again, how they interpret it yeah. plays a big role as well. Yes. Yes. There's a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful researcher. You're probably, I know you're probably familiar with him, but just for your listeners, um, Dr. Neil Whitehead in New Zealand yes. has really makes the research understandable for the lay person. And so his website, I always tell people that his website, which is my genes, G E N E S 
www.co.nz for New Zealand. But he breaks down a lot of these studies, even the other studies where they claimed, you know, oh, the gay the brains of gay men are different than the brains of straight men. All different studies where there have been claims, which just on that note, our brain changes according to our experiences. So having a different brain shows nothing of causality. Um, But he explains all that so well. So I think if anyone is interested in whether it's twin studies or any of the studies that have been done, Dr. Whitehead really breaks it down and explains it so well on his website. That's excellent. I've also come across um, another uh, doctor, um, uh, Dr. Andre Van Mol. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, much of what he's done, but He's also, uh, he and other doctors have taken some of these studies and, and just really shown and poked holes in, you know, the, the methodology and uh, the, the, um, uh, the agenda kind of behind it uh, and, and show that they're actually not um, showing what they're, what they're purported to indicate. Actually, in some yeah. cases, they're showing the opposite. So uh, I appreciate yeah. his work um, as well. I wonder, um, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Julie, if if um, w- when we haven't talked much about transgenderism, and of course, it seems like, mm. you know, that homosexuality, lesbianism, that's almost, I mean, that's kind of a yawn these days. I mean, it's not, but culturally kind yeah. of speaking, um, and it's definitely kind of been moved off the centerpiece of culture and transgenderism and gender non-binary and uh, kind of all of these alternative identity uh, options are very much at the right at the centerpiece of culture, I believe, um, both within secular culture. But I think in many ways, because of that, the church also is needing to, to deal with a lot of these things and, and, and totally ill-equipped on how to do that. Do you have um, anything you'd like to share with us or can share with us um, on that kind of uh, identity phenomenon we're seeing? Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's, I think it's tragic what we're seeing happen. And that is that there are some children who truly are not comfortable with themselves and they're not happy with their gender. Mm-hmm. And for many of them, for some of the reasons I described, they're, they're, surrounded by members of the opposite sex. They're craving connection with the same sex. It's not happening. And so they're identifying more with the opposite sex and feeling like that's who they are. Mm-hmm. They're they're like a little boy who is surrounded by women or and, and so he's feeling more female than he is male. He can't, I, then he goes to school and he can't identify with male peers. And so there are these children who are genuinely struggling and, and um, really hurting. And the answer for these children is not, oh, let's make them the opposite sex. But the answer is, let's get to the bottom of why they are unhappy with themselves. Why do they feel so insecure in their in their gender? And so what? But but, and by the way, um, years ago, before this movement of transgender ideology swept over our culture. Those children who did have that type of confusion that you know their parents would seek help for them. 80% of those children would outgrow the desire to be the opposite sex by the time they hit puberty mm-hmm. and adult early adulthood. So they would outgrow the desire to be the opposite sex. Many of them would still go on to claim a gay identity. So they would, for many of them, it was the pre-homosexual kind of track that they were on. They weren't really going to remain uncomfortable with their gender if, if they if time went on. Now today what we have happening, those kids who are not conforming to their gender are being encouraged 
to pursue the opposite sex, to be, pursue becoming the opposite sex, which is really tragic because some of them would have outgrown the desire yes. to be the opposite sex. Many of, most yes. of them, most of them would have. And so now they're being encouraged. And the truth is they can, it's impossible to become the opposite sex. So they're being lied to. Yes. And by professionals as well, we cannot change our DNA. Chromosomes are in all of our cells throughout our bodies, male or female chromosomes. And we can't change that by taking hormones or cutting off body parts Mm -hmm. or putting on new ones. It will not change the biology. And so they're being lied to that change of their actual biology can happen. And they're being offered solutions that are harmful. These drugs that they're being given are so harmful. And it's going to be a life a lifetime of hormones. They will be on medicine and they'll be, I've heard some of them t- that regretted it talk about how they were turned into a medical patient for the rest of yes. their lives. They had to be under medical care the rest of their lives. There's nothing healthy going on physically for them from that point forward. And so, and then of course we see so many of them are regretting it. I mean, there's just so much I could say about how tragic this is that kids are being offered these answers. And, and the bottom line is there are reasons they feel dissatisfied. How about we get to the root of it and help them resolve the internal struggle rather than mask with a false answer, mask the struggle with a false answer, right. which for some is never going to provide satisfaction for them. Right. I had a girl that had uh, was trying to transition to become a boy. And she said, even though she looked very masculine and was playing the part of a male, she said, I go into the gym to work out with other guys. And I always feel like they're more masculine than Mm -hmm. I am because inside and inside she knows that her DNA is not their DNA. It's not the same. And so it's just so sad that they're going to struggle physically and emotionally. Why not give them the the help by getting to the bottom of it with them? And I remember to that point, I, I often refer to uh, a, an online uh, video uh, I think it was on YouTube where uh, the the gal who is has detransitioned um, from from trying to become a, a man or a boy uh, back to you know her own biology um, uh, back to yeah. being a, a woman says that in the experience in the process um, what she realized over time is the goalpost kept moving you know once you you know you change oh, your name and yes. you embrace you know a new identity but you've not done much of anything else beyond that and but that feels amazing to do that you make public announcements right. you go through social transition basically mm-hmm. and that can feel mm-hmm. euphoric and can feel like you know this is yes. an amazing thing but then that wanes and then you're you're looking at um chemical intervention yes. Uh, a hormonal intervention mm-hmm. with testosterone in her case. Yes. And that was incredible. And that was amazing for a while. But then there's been all kinds of complications I've heard, you know, from other women that have been on that too, in terms of what that's done to them. But then, you know, and she's just saying, and, and then she's, you know, she's getting yes. um, top surgery and and that's awesome. But mm-hmm. and, and, and bottom surgery. And then at some point she realized, wait a minute, every time I do this, like this feels euphoric for a while but the goalpost keeps moving yes. and she realized it's never going That's to such stop because this isn't really the issue. And, um, and one of the things she talked yes. about it, her, her, um, video is actually, it's only a five or so minute video, but she's actually addressing it to therapists and just saying, don't be so quick to, um, to put yes. people on this conveyor belt because I was fully in, I bought into it hundred percent. I convinced my parents, Absolutely. I convinced my therapist. And, and the truth is no one, she, there was all kinds when she got honest, there was all kinds of underlying trauma issues, all kinds of reasons for why she didn't feel good about being in her own skin. And no one was actually even asking a question about that because 
everyone's so afraid these days of being, you know, being canceled, being sued, being whatever, just for simply trying to be a good therapist and and look and exploring the possibility yes. of underlying trauma or or issues. And so kids are are completely going, yes. you know, untreated uh, when they desperately need it. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely, yes. Oh. As a therapist, that frustrates me so much that therapists are offering these solutions without dealing with the underlying issues. Just everybody going along with this way of thinking that is illogical and and not a good answer. It is not going to offer satisfaction. But I love that description you said about the goal that the goalpost keeps moving. Yeah. That's exactly it. And the thing is, children that are hurting, and some of them, like I said, some children truly have not been happy with their gender from from the age of three years yeah. old. Some of them, though, it's a new thing. Some of them had other mental health issues, and this sounds like a good solution. They really did not have gender dysphoria at the age of three. They're coming up at 13 or 14 saying it, but they had other mental health. Some of them are on the autism spectrum, many of them. There are other mental health issues going on. And when you offer a child or a teen that type of solution, at first, it sounds great. And the problem is for the the, the client, the, the child or the teen, they start to get tunnel vision. And, and you meet with these kids and they are so locked in. This is what I have to do. And it's the only thing that will make me happy because they've been offered something that sounds great. It's going to solve all their yeah. problems. Sadly, it's many years down the road. They're in this process. Just like you said, th they take the next step and it's wonderful and the next step and they just keep their, their eyes focused on this goal and they don't realize because it takes time, it's it can be years into it where they realize, wait a minute, I'm still just as miserable. I've done all these things yes. and I still have depression, anxiety, all of these other struggles going yeah. on. And so, yeah, it's, that's a, it's, I'm glad now you're talking about someone who, who's now speaking out and thankfully many are speaking right. out. And I, I almost feel like the pendulum in our culture has swung to such an absurd direction right. that we're telling three-year-olds they can be the opposite sex that I think it has to swing back to common sense. I mean, common sense tells us you cannot change your biology. Let's help these children with their true deeper hurts yes. and let's get resolution for yeah. them. Other countries are beginning to wake yes. up, thankfully. I think that the gender clinics in England have been shut down. Now kids can only do it by court order if they're 16. I mean, Sweden, I think there's other countries finally coming around. Right. So hopefully the the U.S. will also. Yep, absolutely. I, and I, there's been some pressuring here in the U.S. I'm thinking of um, in Tennessee in particular, but there's been other pressure applied to some uh, children's hospitals and other hospitals around the country that nobody even knew that they were doing these things. And um, and it's being exposed wow. that, you know, what they're actually offering uh, to children. And I, I actually watched a... Um, an online piece. I, I need to go back and, and um, be able to name exactly uh, what this was for, but it was a training for um, doctors in uh, nurses, medical staff. And, and the woman who was presenting was giving all of the dollar benefits of, um, of getting children wow. into this process and how much um, a double oh mastectomy uh, can bring in as far as um, uh, uh, money into the hospital or into, you know, to the doctor and just going through this process of all the various things, a bottom surgery, and, and it was all being equated um, and, and looked at from a, from a business um, perspective. And it was just disgusting. I mean, so vile. The other thing that you oh, mentioned yes. too, yes. Um, yes. that, uh, that occurs to me is I know there's been in, I, what is it? Maybe six, seven, eight years ago, uh, um, I think it was out of Brown University that um, that a researcher exposed um, what's what's now understood, at least by many, denied by many, because they just don't want to look at it, 
uh, but understood as rapid onset gender dysphoria, especially amongst mm-hmm. girls, right? Um, not really happening amongst boys. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that that you know a number of years ago, the the predominant uh, gender that was um, uh, it is still a very tiny percentage. But that was um, experiencing same uh, gender dysphoria were boys, were men, and um, and now it's completely mm-hmm. flipped. Where um, it seems like a mm-hmm. predominant, uh, predominantly happening amongst girls, but it's especially happening amongst girls that are in the same peer group. And it seems like it, it's more of a social mm-hmm. contagion where one within the peer group kind of picks this up, and before long, um, the entire group is is moving in the same direction. Where previously they had not, um, their parents would say. There was zero um, issue. They were girly girls, or they were, or they, but yes. then tomboys, but they weren't at odds with their yes. gender or their biology. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts about rapid onset right. gender dysphoria? Yes, yes, and I would say that's even more hard to believe that therapists are not seeing this more clearly. Yeah. That they're, you know, these are the kids. Like you're saying, they did not have a history of this, and so to to encourage a girl to pursue hormones, to stop puberty, or to begin taking opposite sex hormones when this is a new problem that she didn't have before. And it just so happens to be at a time in our culture where it's being encouraged through everywhere you look that these kids are kind of being saturated in a culture of transgender ideology to think. It's shocking to me that professionals cannot see the writing on the wall that maybe there's something else that we need to help these kids with. Instead, this might be a a trend that's coming, you know, coming through their peer group. Mm -hmm. And we, why on earth would we recommend these irreversible? uh, In fact, I think the book you might be talking, there is a book, Irreversible Damage, but why are we recommending these irreversible um, treatments? It's, it's shocking. It reminds me the way that people, um, professionals, even, especially the way that they are reacting to this reminds me of the emperor's new clothes. Oh, I don't know if you remember that. Story, I actually included that. In everybody's a blog just going post. Along I did a, a ministry update about three months ago. I used that very story in connection with That's explaining funny. this. Yes. Yes. It's exactly yeah. what we see happening. It's, cr- it's just unbelievable. Now I will say, I think for some parents, the reason many parents are going along with it is because they're being told your child will kill yes. themselves if you don't. Yes. And that, so I think for some parents, they're they're truly not knowing what to do and they're feeling confused. And, and that whole saying, would you rather have a dead daughter or a live yes. son is so misused. And the truth is, this is not a solution for suicide, for a child who's feeling suicidal. Getting to the root of it would be if they're feeling suicidal. Right. And we know that after after people go down this road, there is still a much higher rate of suicidal thinking and acting after they've already gone down this, this whole road. So it's, it's really not a solution. Now I will say some of these kids are fragile. And so we do need to treat with care and help them find solutions. Some of them may be suicidal, but the answer isn't make them into the opposite sex. The answer is get to the root of their issues. And there are often many, many multiple mental health issues going on at the same time. Yeah, Do it with love and gentleness, but also pursue that, you know, with them. And I I agree. I hear from so many parents that have, have just buckled under, under that, um, that question, which is so abusive, you know, to them and, and just dumps on so much guilt. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's a tough thing, but one of the things I wanted to, to talk about a little bit before we wrap up is, uh, just the, even the phrase, um, conversion therapy, you know, the, the idea Mm -hmm. that, um, 
for me, I, as I look at that, it seems like that's been raised as kind of a, a red herring, as, as sort of a straw man that um, is is built up and supported as if today, I, I think there were horrible things that went on back in the, what would it be, the 40s, the 50s, you know, that uh, with with any man or maybe it, with women who um, uh, who are dealing with, uh, homosexuality or were caught somehow in, in living out, you know, a, a gay identity or something. Um, I, I think there were terrible things, you know, done there. Um, and, and, uh, but today, I mean, counselors, therapists, there's all kinds of regulation and ethics around the, that, um, uh, the mental health field already, um, in professionals in general. Yes. And the idea that somehow, um, uh, you know, that, that electroshock therapy, that, um, aversion therapy, that, um, severe treatment or shaming of an individual in a counselor's office or therapist's office, the idea that that's happening on a routine basis. Um, I remember seeing a, um, I don't remember what the, so I, I won't say, you know, I can't remember what the, um, what the news organization was, but they did a hit piece um, you know, on a, on a children's home in the South, uh, this was done maybe eight or nine years ago. And, um, and, and they nationally, they blew it up as, um, it was a conversion therapy camp. When you look at all the, all the local mm -hmm. reporting on what happened, it looked as if maybe the children's home was, maybe they should have been shut down because they were just, uh, potentially, I'm not even saying they were, but it sounded like they may potentially have been, you know, abusive, harsh, but it, but it had nothing to do. There was no local reporting about um, anything having to do with homosexuality or any of that. And this 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 national news group uh, found some kid, one child um, that was uh, you know gay identified, and they built the whole story around that. And then at the end of it, they talked about how th this was a cottage industry across the country. I read that was their exact phrase that this was a cottage oh industry around the country of these conversion therapy camps and. And, you know, I've, I've talked to investigative reporters that are friends. We all would love to ferret out and understand if there are any such camps going on in the name of Christianity or any of that, and frankly, get rid of them. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be doing this stuff yeah. that, uh, 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 harsh treatment of children or any of those kind of things. So all of us would agree that that's wrong, but then what happens, it seems like mm -hmm. under the banner of conversion therapy, that every possible, the most loving, the most gracious, uh, attempt to walk with somebody according to their right of self-determination to, uh, you know, to, to work through some issues, to work through trauma. They might have a desire to have a, a natural family of their own one day, uh, or maybe it's a faith issue and they, they believe that this isn't God's best for them. And, and so they're seeking help and support. And yet in the name of conversion therapy, it's all being shut down and that, that right is being taken away from them. I mean, that's, in, in a in a rough sketch in in you know not such a mm -hmm. uh, a great and polished way that's kind of how I view that but I would love to get your thoughts on your perspective of conversion therapy yes 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 it's it's funny you mentioned that about the convert conversion therapy camps I've always said show me a camp. Yes. what are you talking about I would love and I think you you're out in Phoenix I'm in Florida we've been involved with this working with this issue for years neither one of us have ever seen or heard of yeah. <laughs> conversion therapy camp. Where is it? I would love to see, uh, but they just don't exist. That's just not, it's just made mm -hmm. up. Yes, there may be some crazy children's homes or places where children are sent that have problems, all types yeah. of problems, not because they're gay, but because they have all types of problems that mishandle. I mean, there's military, you know, boot camps for kids and there's sure. all kinds of things that, that may use, but we have laws in every state 
that handle abuse. Children are not allowed to be abused. They're not allowed to be neglected, abandoned, abused in any way. And so if there are homes or schools for children, boarding schools, whatever, that are abusive to children, those places can be investigated and they can be shut mm-hmm. down. Now, when it comes to this issue, exactly what you've said, people have made, painted this false picture that abuse is taking place and needs to be stopped. But when it comes to actual legislation, what they're stopping is not, they're not shutting down abusive homes. And, and like you and I both know, I don't know right. of a single place that exists to treat kids that are gay. I do not know of a single one. But um, what they, this led, these legislation that the, that the, laws that have been passed in cities and some states around the country, what they say is that conversion therapy is any attempt to change a person's sexual identity or even gender expression. By the way, gender expression is mannerisms. So any attempt to change. So, and those conversion therapy bans only apply to licensed therapists. So it doesn't, that doesn't even touch we already have laws in place to shut down abusive residential facilities yep, if there are right. abusive residents and they're pro- And, but um, those conversion therapy bans are only aimed at licensed therapists. And what licensed therapists do is we talk for a yes. living. And so they, and, and the, the wording is that it's conversion therapy is any attempt to change a person's sexual orientation, behavior, or gender um, gender expression, gender identity, or gender expression. And so it's literally saying you cannot talk. Therapists are not allowed to talk to a person if your desire is to help them change any of those things. Mm-hmm. It, it, when you really look at what's happening, it is mind boggling that l- logical adults have allowed this to go on because it is so um, double standard and and it doesn't illogical. It does not make any sense. What they're saying is, if a five year old boy was brought into therapy because he thinks that he's a girl, under the of conversion therapy bans, if I lived in a state or a city where those bans were in place, I would not be allowed to talk to that boy about how to be comfortable as a boy. But because that would be called conversion therapy, if you're trying to change his gender identity, if he thinks he's a girl, I just have to help him be a girl. I can't help him be comfortable as a boy. If I live in some of those states that illogical bans have been passed, but I would be allowed to tell him, why don't you start wearing a dress? Why don't you change your name? And then let's look at hormones when you, uh, about eight or nine, you can start doing puberty suppressing hormones, 10. Are you kidding me? This is what we're doing in the the United States. We're saying we can't talk to a child about how to get to the root of their confusion, talk, verbally talk with them about how to get to the root of their confusion, but we can help them be the opposite sex. So they're, they're illogical. And then the other thing is, if a therapist is being abusive to their client, if they're talking in a way that is hurtful, the the therapist can be reported to the state and there will be an investigation. I mean, therapists can lose their license if they're abusing children. And so we already have laws in place to protect children from being abused in therapy. But but now there are activists who are instead passing bans on what therapists are allowed to talk about. And more importantly, what clients are allowed to bring into the therapy session. It's literally saying if you are under the age of 18 and you have unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion, you are not allowed to get help unless you want to be the opposite sex and then you can get help. I mean, it just makes no sense. Again, the emperor's new clothes, people are just being kind of going just um, full steam ahead down a track that doesn't make sense. 
One of the things that is used to convince lawmakers to ban so-called conversion therapy, which is just talk therapy, one of the the um, weapons used to convince lawmakers is the claim that this type of therapy, therapy for unwanted same-sex attraction, leads people to be suicidal. That that statement is not based in fact. In fact, there was a recent there were recent um, claims that were made that research had shown that people who went through therapy for unwanted same-sex attraction were more suicidal than people who didn't. And so they said, so therefore, this therapy caused them to be suicidal. Well, there was a guy by the name of Dr. Paul Sullins who took a closer look at the data that was used for that study. And the data came from a large sample called, I think, the Generations uh, Study or the Generations Data. And he looked at the data. And what he found is that the people who were suicidal were actually suicidal before therapy. And then they went through therapy. And maybe that's why the ones who were more suicidal may have sought out therapy because they were suicidal perhaps. So, but after therapy, um, well, here's here's what they have. Here's what he found: the people that were suicidal were suicidal before therapy. So it was a f- totally false mm-hmm. claim to say therapy made them suicidal. Okay, and he found out that after therapy, their suicidal thinking had been reduced. And so what that study actually found is that therapy yes. reduced suicide, but activists use it to claim that it increased suicide. Just a flat out lie, yes. just a misuse and misrepresentation of the data. So we know that that in this particular study, we see that therapy actually reduced people, the suicidality that people were experiencing. So therapy is helpful. It's amazing. I mean, it's a good case study in how when you leave out one data point, obviously on the basis yes. of bias, and, and you just leave out that, yes. oh, they came in suicidal and in, is suicidal. And then at the end of it, you're saying that, oh, they're, you're leaving that out. And so now you're saying, but there are still people who are yes. suicidal afterward. And so that somehow proves that it causes this. But right. in fact, no, there was actually a reduction right. when you look at the data, as you just said. Yes. I mean, it, just that yes. one data point yes. being left out because of bias yes. um, is, is amazing. Uh, you know, right. it, it changes everything. Yes. Um, and it also reminds yes. me, I remember reading um, uh, Dr. Uh, Ryan T. Anderson's um, book, When Harry Became Sally, you know, years ago. And I remember oh, one yeah. of the stats in there that he he had based on other research, or he had, he had pulled from other research, is that um, that those who have gone through surgery are still 19 times more likely um, to commit suicide than the average population. Yes. And so just on yes. the basis of yes. that information alone, obviously yes. surgery, uh, I know that there are some who report, um, uh, you know, being happy with the surgery. Uh, but I, what I've seen too, is that the, the research that's done on that is done in a very narrow window only for about maybe a year mm-hmm. or so. And then after that, it's, mm-hmm. it's just kind of dropped mm-hmm. off. Like they're not even looking at people mm-hmm. beyond that time frame. Mm-hmm. And so of course there's going to be, yes. it tend to be more of an initial euphoria after the healing process. Right. Um, and, yes. and then the regret is going to, you know, come later, but even if there are some yes. who are experiencing, um, you know, a positive sense for a longer period of time, we're not even looking at the the massive numbers of those who are not and are still dealing with, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all kinds of issues that obviously the surgery did not yes. solve in any way, shape or form. And what I've started uh, sharing at conferences and summits and uh, different uh, uh, teaching opportunities is there actually is a real thing of conversion therapy. And here it is. I've had report after report of parents and, and individuals who have gone into a counseling office for dealing with anxiety or depression or things of that nature. 
And, and the counselor actually leads them down this road of, they didn't come in because they were dealing with same sex attraction or they, you know, unwanted sexual issues, but the counselor starts asking them questions about their sexuality. And before long, the counselor is suggesting that, um, they are actually, um, either they need to embrace who they are as, as homosexual, uh, and pursue those relationships or, uh, or that they might want to consider the possibility that they're trans. So, so it's interesting how, you know, they can, it's even being suggested to people who aren't coming in saying, I want to resolve these issues right. by you affirming, um, the, this transition mm-hmm. of some sort, mm-hmm. they're coming in for other reasons and the, and the counselor is leading them in this direction, but it's the only direction they can be led in. Um, it's uh, the other, mm-hmm. the other way, even if it's according to their right of self-determination, like they want help and support with this, the counselors are being stopped. And, and I, I don't, um, you're probably more up on this than I am, but when you look at what Canada passed a year ago, I think it's, I think it was bill C4. Um, that bill was expansive and, um, and it mm-hmm. was, uh, it's, it's not just, uh, for kids, it's for anyone. It's for, it's, mm-hmm. it would be a ban, mm-hmm. um, uh, against adults receiving help and support. And it's not only for counselors. It is anybody, anybody in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in the country of Canada, uh, is not allowed to, um, uh, you know, it, it, by this bill, they're not supposed to pray with people. They're not supposed to in any way um, try to help or support somebody who comes to them uh, with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria that they would like to resolve to be able to live out, you know, according to their biology. So it's really, it, it's just, mm-hmm. it's really crazy and insane um, just how expansive mm-hmm. and how um, abusive that bill is in Canada. And of course, it's always knocking mm-hmm. at our door as well. There are politicians and others uh, you know, legislators and others, um, in our country and beyond that, that I think would love to adopt that same kind of language for our country. So mm-hmm. anyway, well, thanks yeah. for explaining that. Um, Dr. Julie, what your thoughts are. I, we are going to wrap up here. Um, how, how can people best, uh, connect with, uh, with you and the, and the work that you're doing? How would you like people to, uh, to reach out if they're wanting, you know, input or help from you? Yes. Um, they can email me at, um, at Julie at drjuliehamilton.com. If they want to know more about um, the roots and causes, kind of a little bit of what I talked to, I do have a website, homosexuality101.com. They can find resources there and listen to a teaching on some of the developmental factors, homosexuality101.com. Thank you so much for joining us for this Love and Truth Network podcast. To listen to or watch future episodes, please check us out at loveandtruthnetwork.com forward slash podcast. Also, you can subscribe to Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you in a future episode.